Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected within the life and times of our man, Nick. Thanks so much for joining me today for this episode as we get Nick and his family out to Hollywood in 1957 and tie the Dunn family's Hollywood experience into a legend from the silent film era with spiderwebs and connections for decades. You see, it's not just any ordinary home that the Dunn family, Nick and Lenny and their two boys, will move into when they arrive in the land of sunshine and opportunity. It is into the Santa Monica Beach home of Harold Lloyd, famous silent film star with many hidden layers that the Dunn family will land into for this pivotal time before the big move into their home on Walden Drive in Beverly Hills in 1958. Nick and Lenny have a whole year hanging out in Santa Monica with Patricia Kennedy and Peter Lawford as their next-door neighbors and Harold Lloyd as their landlord. And truly, it's super easy for Harold Lloyd not to be at his beach home for just a little while to help out the Duns because, you see... Harold Lloyd has a whole estate in Benedict Canyon called Green Acres with some very famous neighbors with spiderwebs that go for galaxies in our Hollywood celestial orbit. Also, Harold Lloyd has an interesting connection back into our mirror ball of Marilyn Monroe. Let's investigate. Dominic, Harold Lloyd, I'm sure, says, come on out and rent my beach house as your family is getting settled. This is 1957. After the passing of Humphrey Bogart, it is into the Beach Road, Santa Monica beach scene that Dominic is going to find himself in. I mean, if he needed better parties and better places, you can't get too much better than living as neighbors to Patricia Kennedy and her husband, Peter Lawford. Remember that Nick and Lenny marry the very same day as Peter and Pat, April 26th of 1954. And remember again, Nick is thrilled when he and Lenny get the same amount of inches in the New York Times. And whoa, you gotta think Nick is feeling pretty swell about himself. He's gotta be out of his mind with this development. And Lenny Dunn, his wife, is always a lot more cool about interacting with the rich and famous. Remember, Lenny is a legit heiress, and all of that pretension and cash and the stardust thing isn't all terribly impressive to her. Lenny has the elegance of a lady. There is no need to make a scene. Lenny is beauty. She's grace, and her husband maybe doesn't act as cool in the scene as Lenny will. But alas, the Duns have landed and it is into the beach cottage of Harold Lloyd. Dominic is all in for making this move to California. Remember waking Lenny up after that Humphrey Bogart party? Poor Lenny back on the East Coast with two young babies at home. I'm certain the middle of the night phone call is not what she quite expected. 
But Lenny, I need you to know, is Nick's greatest asset at this time. Not only because of her inherent elegance and coolness, her easy attitude around everything, but also, as mentioned, Lenny has a lot of money. She's an heiress. She's got a lot of family money, and Nick, at the time, is making $75 a week. It is not Nick's salary that allows the Dunn family to afford the Santa Monica Beach rental home upon their move. Freddie Eberstadt, a friend of the Dunn's, says Lenny kind of goes along with this nonsense, as the move was never supposed to be permanent. Maybe six weeks, maybe six months. And imagine Lenny in the meantime giving up her seven-room apartment on the east side in the city near the park. But for her husband and his dreams, she will agree to go, at least for a little while. But the Dunn's together never really go back to the East Coast. They will become Hollywood people from this point. Nick does get this home funded by Lenny, and honestly, Lenny thinks her husband has lost his mind. Upon walking through the house for the first time, she asks him, were you drunk? It's seven or eight bedrooms. Who can count, really? And not only are the Kennedy Lawford's neighbors, but on the other side is May West and her Nutra-designed home. May's home is next door to the immense colonial-style beach home that William Randolph Hearst builds for his lady love, Marion Davies. Although during the time the Dunns are there at the beach, the Davies home is being converted into a private club. Nick himself will write that they spent way too much money. He says he was always wanting more, 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 although his wife was inclined to be a little bit more conservative about the amount of money they were spending. Not only does Lenny lose her place in the social register for marrying Dominic, Lenny's mother thinks that Nick is just an outright gold digger. The acquisition of this beach home rental only cements that in more for Beatrice Sandoval Griffin, Lenny's mother. And truly, this home is only the beginning of some very lavish spending the couple will do in Hollywood, but hey, Nick is making his dreams come true. So here we leave Nick, Lenny, and the boys chilling in a pretty posh home, sitting on the coast, and life is looking pretty good. But hey, where does Harold Lloyd live? And who the heck is Harold Lloyd anyway? Harold Lloyd, born April 20th, 1890, was a huge star within the silent film era. He is way more than a big deal, although maybe not as recognizable as the other two in his trio. Harold Lloyd kind of rounds out part of a triumvirate, the other two members being Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Harold Lloyd, if you see him, you may recognize him, he wears big glasses. That's his character's name, Glasses. And his character is incredibly doofy, but very earnest. And this disguise with his big glasses that don't actually have lenses allow Harold Lloyd to remain virtually unrecognizable in public. Marilyn Monroe will pull the same stunt when she does not want to be seen. Harold Lloyd gets his start, and is raking in the cash by the early 1920s. What did Gloria Swanson say just a few weeks ago? We were raking in the dough, and it looked like it was never going to end. 
We got a lot of earnings. We got a lot of spending. Some of Lloyd's more famous films include Grandma's Boy in 1922, Safety Last, (laughs) 1923, Girl Shy in 1924, The Freshman in 1925, and Speedy in 1928. If you do have a scene that you visualize him within, probably his most unforgettable is from the film Safety Last, in which Harold Lloyd is dangling desperately from the hand of a giant clock above a street in downtown Los Angeles. Harold Lloyd is hardworking. He makes a lot of dough. And he wants to build a home. Building a home, building an impressive home even more so, is, after all, the way you show your wealth, prominence, and importance within the Hollywood scene. Today we're going to head into Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, where Harold Lloyd will find 15 acres to build an estate. This estate is going to be bigger and more audacious than any other home. (laughs) Because homes are going up right and left in this boon of building in the 1920s. A lot of famous folks are coming to Benedict Canyon. And these aren't just famous folks. These are Harold's friends. Here again, we reinforce the idea of community, of colony. Everyone is connected because they're passing sugar and milk in between their yards. They're all in the same set for good or ill. And Hollywood at this time, throughout the times, is actually a very tight-knit, connected world. And Harold, his epic building project is going to outdo them all. His home Green Acres will be the one to outdo them all, but let's get Harold to Hollywood first. Harold is born in Burchard, Nebraska, to a mother who herself was a frustrated actress. That same frustrated actress mother will pass along the love of theater to her son. The family is not terribly well off and moves quite a lot in Harold's youth. His parents will divorce, and Harold will come out with his father to California, San Diego, in fact, in 1912. And Harold, much to his mother's inclinations is looking to be an actor. Because at this time, remember, movies aren't a thing. You're looking at stage acting. Movies at this time are 10-minute films. A double feature is two 10-minute films put together. But hungry and young and desperate, Harold Lloyd will find himself actually looking for any job that will actually pay him. So hello, world of movie acting. And it is into the extra business that Harold Lloyd will land with a guaranteed pay of $3 a day. Hello, Los Angeles. Harold Lloyd is going to do extra work for both Universal and Keystone Studios in the early 19-teens, at least until newly minted producer Hal Roach comes along. In 1915, Hal Roach and Harold Lloyd will begin making short comedies together. Harold Lloyd's character that he creates, his first iteration of character, is called Lonesome Luke. But after a few years, Lonesome Luke grows a bit stale and he will create his more famous character, the Glasses character. And it is off to the races. The only actors more popular than Harold Lloyd by the end of the 19-teens are Charlie Chaplin and Fatty Arbuckle. See, by 1919, Harold Lloyd is earning $500 a week and 50% of the profit his movies make. 
In just two years, by 1921, Harold's earning $1,000 a week and 80% of his film's profits. Just that $1,000 a week base pay is almost $17,000 a week in today's dollars. The 1920s are going to be quite a ride for Harold Lloyd. He will eventually split with Hal Roach and begin his own company. Harold is also going to get married to actress Mildred Davis. Mildred and Hal met back in 1919 when she was cast as a leading lady against him in a film and, well, it's love or something like it. See, by 1923, Mildred, who does want to be an actress, is about to go and do some other pictures with some other guys besides Harold, and Harold doesn't want Mildred to do that. So, a marriage of convenience potentially is on. In February 1923, the couple weds. They take a 10-day honeymoon in San Diego. Marriage goes well enough for about a year, but after that year, Harold decides that he wants Mildred to act no more and instead become a mother and homemaker. Maybe not quite what Mildred had bargained for. But upon the happy occasion of the nuptials, the bachelor pad in which Harold Lloyd had been living just isn't going to do. Harold will give that place to his father, and it is to the Windsor Square District first, just developing at the time. Mildred and Harold will move into a furnished rental that he will buy soon enough, April of 1923, for $125,000. The home at the time is described by the LA Times as, quote, a pile of cream-toned grandeur. We're not here for this home, though. The Lloyds won't be in this cream-toned grandeur very long, as in May of 1923, Harold Lloyd buys 10 acres in Benedict Canyon, the price is $100,000. He wants to build a house. This is the first 10 acres that Green Acres, his home, palatial home, will encompass. But he's going to get a little bit more land in 1925 due to the tragic and mysterious death of Thomas Ince. Oh, the spider webs, nothing linear in everything connected investigators. Thomas Ince was a well known producer who was in the middle of it all in Hollywood in the 19-teens, the 1920s. A lot of spider webs with Thomas Ince. Old Tom Ince is sort of doing his thing until his mysterious death upon the Oneida, the yacht of William Randolph Hearst, in November of 1924. There's a wonderful film, the 2001 film called The Cat's Meow, which provides a perhaps fictional, perhaps pretty accurate view of the story. Who knows? Glorious film, regardless. Tom Ince is on the Oneida, the party boat, for a weekend with with William Randolph Hearst, Marion Davies, Charlie Chaplin, Eleanor Glenn, and Luella Parsons. This is potentially how Luella Parsons gets her start at Hearst Papers from knowing whatever really happened on that particular boat journey, which leaves Thomas Ince dead, or mostly dead, in order to get back home and die at his home in Benedict Canyon. It is really all very mysterious and a wonderful story to explore, but today it is the land in Benedict Canyon on which Tom and his wife, Ellen Nell, have built their home. 
They have almost five acres. They built a home called Dias Dorados. And now Tom's widow in 1925 will sell a few adjoining acres that come up to Harold Lloyd's 10-acre property. Nell sells these four-plus acres for about $39,000. Now Harold has what he needs to build a home. Just kind of another fun fact here. Nell will take this cash from Harold Lloyd, the sale of those acres, after her husband, Thomas Entz, was dead, murdered, killed on that little seaboat trip. And Nell Entz, smart lady, she's left with quite a large fortune and three sons and the truth about perhaps what her husband had been up to that she didn't quite know about. After Tom Entz's funeral, Nell will go to Europe. A lot of gossip columnists at the time say that this trip was paid for by William Randolph Hearst to keep Nell quiet about whatever mysterious thing perhaps happened to her husband. When Nell returns to Los Angeles, Nell's no idiot. She begins reorganizing her life. She begins working through her late husband's estate. In 1926, after the $1.6 million estate, enormous money at the time, was settled. Equal portions go to Nell and their three sons. And this little bit of side cash from Harold Lloyd, Nell is going to build the now iconic Villa Carlotta Apartments. She's owned this land for a long time. She will build the Villa Carlotta Apartments upon them. But a year later, again with her widow's funds, construction will begin across the street on Chateau Elysee. Lots of building projects here. Again, gossip and rumors say that this is, again, all hush money from William Randolph Hearst. But the thing with Nell, she's a shrewd businesswoman. She's going to deal in real estate the rest of her life. Within her Chateau Elysee, it is one of the West Coast centers of 1930s cafe society. She builds an incredible place that has a lot of history all on its own. The Chateau Elysee is a big deal for the time, but it still exists today. Twist you didn't see coming. <laughs> the property is the beginning of the home of the Celebrity Center for Scientology, serving as their Hollywood home base from 1973 on. The Church of Scientology bought that property after Nell's death and with extensive building up and around the original structure, this heavily guarded, very private property today is thought to be somewhere in the $75 million range. But Nell Entz more connected than you might imagine. I do love the spider webs, but alas, this story is about Harold Lloyd and his home, Green Acres and Benedict Canyon. It's a great time to take a break. See you on the flip with the rest of the story. So here we have Harold Lloyd, newly married, newly with 15 acres. He needs a home befitting his status as an A-list movie star. And of course, Hal wants to be around all of the other A-list movie stars. Let's take a quick dip into Benedict Canyon and look at the people in the homes around Harold's future building project. The very first building in the Benedict Canyon area. Happens at the base of Benedict Canyon, right on sunset. 
We know it. We've talked about it. The infamous Pink Palace itself, the Beverly Hills Hotel. If you want a little bit more info on that, go back in time to episode number four of Done and Done to hear about the founding of the hotel, the development, and then the Silberstein sisters who fought for control of it decades later that Dunn wrote about. But it is really the Beverly Hills Hotel from 1912 on that began bringing the people to this area of Hollywood. Beverly Hills isn't incorporated yet. The Beverly Hills Hotel is the first thing that's built in this area. The hotel is located, again, at the bottom of the canyon, and the famous are going to build up. Back within our journey in Done and Done, we have talked often about rich folks building really expensive projects to outdo the other rich people that are building really expensive projects next door. We've specifically seen it in the Upper East Side of New York City, as well as in Newport, Rhode Island. This Benedict Canyon building in the 1920s kind of makes all of that look like amateur play. Holy cats, let's talk about it. So, Beverly Hills Hotel, 1912, begins the building boon in this area. Until the most famous couple of Hollywood at the time will truly set this area on the map. It is Douglas Fairbanks Sr. and Mary Pickford. These two are going to purchase a remote hunting lodge in 1919, which will in turn become their famous home, Pickfair. Pickfair naturally takes a portion from each of their names, Fairbanks and Pickford. The very simple 1919 remote lodge that they buy will be thoroughly reconstructed over the next five years and becomes (laughs) a mock Tudor four-story, 25-room mansion. Pickfair is the first residence to have a pool, or is it? Because remember, the most spectacular movie star home at this point is the Garden of Allah, not yet operating as a hotel or living space. It is still the private home of Allah Nazimova, Remember, Allah has a pool installed in the shape of the Black Sea in honor of her homeland. The home pick fair is finally finished in 1924. And wowza, now all the stars are coming. Harold Lloyd's 15 acres, right next door to pick fair. But going down just a little bit, one of the most famous friends of Harold Lloyd and both Doug and Mary is Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, along with Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, and D.W. Griffith, will form United Artists, like, in no time at all. And see, Charlie has attained a few acres back in the day up in the canyon right next door to his friends, Doug and Mary. The idea he has is to build sort of a studio there, someplace that he can work, which will not happen. What will happen instead is Charlie Chaplin's new home. Construction here begins in 1922, and you got to compete with the neighbors, and (laughs) if you believe the legend, there is a whole network of underground tunnels that travel between Pickfair and Charlie Chaplin's home, known as the Breakaway House. Charlie will not go through the trouble of finding architects and designers and developers. Charlie will instead just use stage and set designers from the studio to build the home, which makes his home kind of last exactly as long as a movie set. The Breakaway House, as it is known, 
begins to fall apart quickly, and this sort of becomes the home's reputation. Charlie Chaplin will live in the breakaway house through the next few decades, through his marriages with Lita Gray, Paulette Goddard, and Una O'Neill. Don't forget, Charlie Chaplin's last wife, Una O'Neill, was a grand friend of Gloria Vanderbilt, who we have covered extensively in a previous season. It all really does come together. What's on the other side of Harold Lloyd's 15 acres? Just down the road, another part, the last part of this comic trio. Buster Keaton has a home as well in Benedict Canyon. This home is known as the Italian Villa. Now, a little backstory on Buster Keaton here. Buster Keaton gets discovered in 1917 with a little help from his friends. This is back from his vaudeville days. One of his buddies there, Fatty Arbuckle, will help discover Buster Keaton. This is in Fatty's good days. Joseph Shank becomes Buster Keaton's manager through the early 1920s. Joseph Shank will bamboozle Buster Keaton into marrying the sister of Joe's first wife. Joe has married Norma Talmadge. Buster Keaton will marry her younger sister, Natalie Talmadge, in 1921. Tying this back a bit into Marilyn here, don't forget that Joseph Shank is the grand promoter and supporter of Marilyn Monroe in her early days. He is married to a different wife in Marilyn Monroe's time at the time that he's moving Marilyn Monroe into his Holmby Hills home called Owlwood. This is not long before his death. We talked about this in a Mirabal episode a few weeks ago. Setting Owlwood on the map here, Joseph Shank's home, Owlwood, lives on the curve of Sunset Boulevard. This is about one mile and three minutes away, just down Sunset from the Beverly Hills Hotel. They marry. They have two sons. And Natalie Talmadge, with a movie star husband and a sister who's married to a big-time Hollywood guy, kind of wants her own mansion. Hello, Italian Villa. In 1925, Buster Keaton is going to buy the five acres next to his friends, Charlie Chaplin and Mary and Doug, and will begin building his own home. The Italian villa is a spacious, Mediterranean-style palazzo with a sunken swimming pool. It has a 60-step descending staircase to get to the swimming pool. Three tennis courts. There's a playhouse. There's a trout stream as well. That trout stream is controlled by a push button. There's both a screening room and a cutting room, so we can still work from there. And Natalie Talmadge, famously petite, there is a special toilet made just for her that is her little petite size. This is some real movie star luxury, y'all. The floors are black and white marble. They have accommodations at the Italian villa for six servants. This is not an insignificant spot, a pretty impressive home, as the $300,000 price tag to build it will attest. Pamela Mason will live in the home after the Keatons, and she'll describe the home this way to Keaton biographer Marion Mead, saying the decor was very ornate, very grand, and everything you think he isn't, meaning Buster Keaton. Pamela Mason continues, it was a spectacular dream house. As you can imagine, the bamboozled marriage doesn't go great. Buster and Natalie will divorce in 1932. 
Natalie Talmadge will keep the home in the settlement, but eventually she will sell the home to cover her debts. Within the time after this, many a famous star has lived in the Italian villa, including Cary Grant, Marlena Dietrich. The home is bought by James Mason and his wife Pamela in 1949, and Pamela will live here even after divorcing James until her death in 1996. Those are the three closest immediate neighbors to Harold Lloyd. Hollywood and its connections, y'all. It is worth a note here, as another home is just happening a few streets over. This home is Falcon Lair, the home of Rudolph Valentino, which is just a hop, skip, and jump away from another famous home and famous stars we've covered, Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow. Covered that in a previous episode. Remember the Byrne Harlow home to be owned in Nick's time in the 1960s by Jay Sebring. But Falcon Lair, right next door, is the home of Valentino and has a wonderful history all on its own, which will connect to another legendary heiress that will be coming in our investigation, Doris Duke. Doris Duke buys the home in the early 1950s, long after Rudy's tragic death in 1926. Rudolph Valentino really doesn't live in the home for very long. Falcon Lair, as it is, is built in 1923. Rudolph Valentino buys the place for $175,000 the following year. It's in the Spanish style, two levels, 16 rooms, stucco walls, a red tile roof, hardwood and travertine floors, grand fireplaces, and wood beam ceilings. I really do love old homes. <laughs> The home stands on eight acres, which is plenty of room to build additional stables for horses or kennels for dogs, a servant's quarters. There's also a garage built for a lot of fancy automobiles. Again, Valentino only lives in that home for about two years before his death, but I do hope at this point you can understand here exactly what Harold Lloyd is working with. With all of these impressive neighbors, Homes finished or in construction. Harold Lloyd wants a home to outshine them all, and he'll do it. He'll build a place with over 44 rooms, a dozen fountains, an Olympic-sized pool, a canoe pond, waterfalls, and oh yeah, a nine-hole golf course as well. Lloyd is not messing around, and his estate will be called Green Acres. One house to rule them all. So from 1923 to 1925, Harold Lloyd is planning. He's finding all the people to design the home, build the home, all the extra stuff. Construction will begin in earnest in 1926. And as the home is being built, it's budgeted for a million bucks. It's going to come in at more than double that. But Harold wants only the best. A few examples here. Harold will buy mature trees to plant into his 12 gardens, so everything looks very well-groomed and established. Expensive, though, right? Harold also maybe doesn't go through the right stages at the right times because he'll plant the gardens and build the golf course that people are actually playing on every day before the home is built and finished. Like, it's kind of a construction nightmare. And it's not only the outside of the home and the golf course, and the pool, and the canoe pond, and the dozen fountains and extensive gardens. 
but the inside's going to be pretty amazing too, 44 rooms. Whoa. And this isn't like department store furniture designed. Harold is going to have every bit of his furniture, his rugs, his drapes, all custom made. Thank you very much. And if he can't have them custom made, he may find an antique or two, but only the good ones. A little bit of a fun story here. There is one table of legend. The only thing marred and tarnished within the Green Acres home. Harold will buy this particular table, which comes with a smooth surface for his living room. It is upon a visit from socialite Evelyn Walsh McLean that the table receives its infamous scar. Now, Evelyn's name might not be familiar to you, but her diamond probably sure is. Evelyn Walsh McLean owns the Hope Diamond, who acquired the almost 46-carat stone in 1910, well, she and her husband do, from Pierre Cartier. Evelyn is a mining heiress. She's loaded with cash and is also the very last private owner of the Hope Diamond with quite a storied history on its own. Evelyn also owned the 94-carat Star of the East diamond. She likes her bling, Evelyn does. But this antique table at Green Acres, there's one day where Evelyn Walsh McLean is visiting and the Lloyds naturally ask to see the diamond, the most famous thing that Evelyn has going on. And Evelyn says sure and just tosses it onto that table leaving a scratch that is never removed just because the story makes it worth it. That scratch in that living room table is about the only flaw in an otherwise grand, big, important, and beautiful home. The Lloyd family will move into their new digs in August of 1929, a mere six years after the dream has actually started. They have a three-day housewarming party, there's a dance floor installed on the front lawn and live bands playing nonstop from Friday night to Monday morning. The home by 1936 will be known as Green Acres, and here Harold and Mildred will raise their three children who, you know, are friends with Shirley Temple. It's a home of all kinds of things, friends and teas and tournaments and golf, but hey, the 1920s are ending and the talkies are concluding as well as a thing, and Harold Lloyd just says he hasn't had another project to come along that he wants to do. His current silent films are failing at the box office, and Harold really never officially retires. He just keeps waiting for the right thing to come along, which never really comes, and no more movies for Harold. He will unofficially retire. He will raise and love his three kids, he parties, he golfs, doing the retired movie star thing with his buddies all around. And Harold Lloyd, really a smart businessman. He does not lose his cash like a lot of his friends do in the Depression. He makes some smart investments, maybe including a little beach cottage in Santa Monica among starters. I want to intersect one other neighbor here. This is coming a little bit later down the road in the 1930s, but this particular neighbor will come into play in Dominic Dunn's future life in Hollywood. Right down the road at the intersection of Summit and Cove Way, as of 1934, 
Harold Lloyd's new neighbors are David O. Selznick and his wife Irene, as in Irene Mayer Selznick, the daughter of Louis B. Mayer, sister of Edie Mayer Getz. See, in 1934, David wants to build a home. Look at the precedent that has been set before him in the 1920s and Benedict Canyon's where it's at. See, in 1934, David is going to build a little home. It's a colonial revival estate number designed by Roland Cote. And when I say little home, I'm lying. This baby is 12,500 square feet with seven bedrooms and nine bathrooms. David in 1934 is working at RKO. He's head of production there. This is just a few years before his epic 1939 film, Gone with the Wind, and his 1940 masterpiece, Rebecca. The address of the home is on Summit Drive, and it is here at this home that Irene and David will live throughout their marriage. David O. Selznick, though, will leave Irene after 15 years of marriage for actress Jennifer Jones, which is where we will connect Dominic Dunn back into soon enough, but a different story for a different day that I promise is coming. In this particular home, it's not just David Oselznick and Irene that have lived there, or Jennifer Jones even. Catherine Hepburn will live at this home for a little bit of time after filming The African Queen. Edward L. Doheny will stay there for a while too. Fellow Rat Packer Sammy Davis will call it home as well as actor George Hamilton and Ed McMahon as well. This particular estate was sold in 1991 for $2.1 million. Back in 2017, it was on the market for just under 20. Again, nothing really loses its value in Benedict Canyon. It was a big deal, and it still is. It's a great time to take a pause here, hear a word from our sponsors, and we're going to be back with Harold Lloyd's story and a surprising way of how it ties in to Marilyn Monroe. Oh, investigators, all of that was homes and real estates and connection and an awful lot of dishy fun. But here's the most interesting thing. After leaving the movie business, retiring, not doing any more acting, Harold Lloyd will begin a whole new secret, but not really at all secret, career as a photographer. Everyone in Hollywood knows, but it's not like publications are calling him and sending him out on active shoots. This is very inside in the Hollywood community stuff. It is from the late 1940s to the early 1960s that Harold Lloyd really gets into photography. He is really into 3D photography, 3D being the new technology of the time. Harold Lloyd, over the course of his photography hobby, will take hundreds of thousands of pictures, not just of his friends, but B actresses and pinup girls, famous stars, unfamous people too. Plenty of nude shots work into his collection as well. But Harold Lloyd, y'all, has a really good backdrop to take some photos. So it is two green acres. They all go. The famous, the infamous, the not famous at all, the clothed and the naked. The swimming pool is an incredible backdrop for terrific photos. All those fountains. I mean, if you want to take some pretty pictures, you can't get much better than green acres. 
Some of the prettiest pictures Harold Lloyd snaps are of Marilyn Monroe from the early 1950s. For this particular session, some of the, they're just glorious photos. 1953, Marilyn Monroe is in her mid-20s. It is springtime at Green Acres, and she is simply lovely. At the time, Marilyn is filming How to Marry a Millionaire, and in just a short time, Marilyn will be paired with both Jane Russell and Lauren Bacall in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, again, integrating Marilyn into the future Rat Pack group that we covered in last week's episode. These images that Howard takes are extraordinary. Marilyn is beautiful at the time. The scenery is beautiful. She looks great. And he's a wonderful photographer. These images are from 1953. Marilyn and Harold have met the year before when Hal's buddy, Philip Hulsman, is on assignment for Life magazine, taking photos of Marilyn in her Hollywood apartment. Marilyn and Harold meet. A love affair is born. I mean, not between them, but with Marilyn Monroe and his 3D photos. In the 1950s and 1960s, Harold Lloyd befriends all kinds of folks. Not only the folks he's taking pictures of, but younger and up-and-comers, including Robert Wagner, Jack Lemmon, Debbie Reynolds, too. Harold Lloyd always kind of stays in the mix in Hollywood, even though his palatial home will deteriorate through the years. Mildred, Harold's wife, will pass away in 1969. Harold passes away in 1971 at the age of 77. His estate and fortune, including cash and property, are left to his children and grandchildren. But Harold Lloyd stipulates that Green Acres should be kept open as a museum through the Harold Lloyd Foundation. He wants the museum to benefit and tribute times long gone by to the previous era, to his life and films too, but doesn't leave enough funding to quite make it happen. The museum does open with frequent guests and visitors for about a year, but without sustainable funding, it will close soon after. In July of 1975, Green Acres is auctioned to a developer for $1.6 million. Thousands of folks show up to visit the estate just one more time before the bulldozers will take down much of the property the following year. The palatial gates, the driveway, many of the features as well, the pool, the waterfalls. The property at this time is subdivided into 15 smaller lots ready for new building projects. These individual lots sell up to $1.2 million. So again, wheeling and dealing in Hollywood real estate, not a bad investment. The home itself, Green Acres, is left intact with just a few acres surrounding it. It is empty, it is abandoned, and it wasn't in great repair in the first place. But because it is empty and abandoned, it's left for all kinds of folks just to wander through and pick and take what they would like to. Most of the home is stripped down to just about nothing. Green Acres will sell in 1979. It will sell again in 1986 to Ted Field, the heir to the Marshall Field Department store chain. 
Naturally, extensive renovations and updates are made to the home to make it livable for Ted and his wife and family. Green Acres will change hands again in 1993 for about $19 million to billionaire Ron Burkle. As of May 1997, American actress Barbara Rush, known for her roles in It Came From Outer Space and Peyton Place, lives in the home. One other little bit here that I think is utterly delightful that might survive from the old days. This may lend a little bit of validation to all those rumors of underground tunnels between Pickfair, Charlie Chaplin's place, and maybe even Green Acres. See, Harold Lloyd has a private den built, not at Green Acres, but from Green Acres in an underground tunnel. See, you had to go through this photograph-lined underground tunnel from the mansion. The tunnel went underneath the front lawn and would eventually open up into a two-story home overlooking Benedict Canyon. It's a secret den. There are four-cornered lion's mouths that elevate from this structure, and the secret signal with Harold is if smoke was coming from the tops of those columns, that meant the invitation was open to come along to the party. Frank Sinatra does something very similar in his Palm Springs home. I wonder if he gets it from Harold Lloyd. But if the smoke signal was up, you could come party with Harold at his secret gentleman's club. Goodness, all of this tale is so delightful. Harold Lloyd's granddaughter, bless her, will assemble a book of his photographs. Lovely book, wonderful book. Includes those images of Marilyn. It's quite lovely. But can you imagine his granddaughter's surprise in the sale of Green Acres when she stumbles across the hundreds of thousands of photos, some with clothes and some without. Harold Lloyd, what a legend. Film star, builder, photographer, a Hollywood mover and shaker, which for a little while in 1957 didn't need his beach cottage too much anyway and let the Duns rent it out for their coming to Hollywood. It all comes back around, investigators. Friends, thanks so much for tuning in today to this ride through Benedict Canyon for Harold Lloyd. We have so much more coming on your next Dunday. Many thanks and much gratitude. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you for tuning in to listen, for telling your friends, for your kind support, your emails, your reviews. Y'all are simply amazing. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.